the study of the book of Ecclesiastes. It is challenging and it is encouraging. It is depressing. It is many things. And when you finish, you realize how important this book really is. After several lessons that we have studied together, the theme seems to be very repetitive, and that is there's no satisfaction under the sun. I thought it was interesting that as this week has progressed and I thought about the theme that I would be delivering tonight, this morning as I was driving to the church building, I was listening on one of the talk radio stations. And the announcer on that program was discussing the insecurity and the satisfaction level of the people in our country. And the points that he was making was that with regards to security, it did not matter whether you were young or old, did not matter if you were male or female, it did not matter if you were black, if you were yellow, if you were white, or if you were red, it cuts across all demographics that people are concerned about the future. They're concerned financially. Will they be able to afford a lifestyle that they want to live? They are concerned for their children and their grandchildren and for the young themselves. What will the future be like in the next five years, in the next ten years? They're also concerned about the moral fabric of our society. You see, the truth is, is that as you and I look about this world, this world has no satisfaction in it. Try as he might. Man is met with frustration. He's met with failure. And it appears as if life never will be what we want it to be. The song we sing, I believe, captures this very well. Earth holds no treasures, but perish with using. However precious they be, yet there's a country to which I am going. Heaven holds all to me. You see, that's what Solomon is trying to get us to see. Look at life. Look at what you can derive from it. Well, chapter 6 continues with this same emphasis. You have to make the best of the life that you now have because you have to live today, but you have to prepare for tomorrow. And so what do you do with the day that you have today? And what will you do to prepare for the morrow that comes? As you and I have studied through, sometimes Solomon will make in a chapter four, five, maybe even sometimes six points. In chapter six, he really only has a focus on two things. First of all is in verses one through eight, man's quest for satisfaction. I want to have a life that I feel like I can say, this is good. And then he talks about Questions for the one who really knows the answers in verses 9 through 12. Let's begin by reading verses 1 through 8. I'm going to put it on the screen 
perhaps maybe it would be good for you to have your Bible open there. And I'd suggest to you that there's some of this that deserves our pausing and thinking about. Let's hear what Solomon says. There's an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is common among men. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor so that he lacks nothing for himself of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him the power to eat of it, but a foreigner consumes it. This is vanity and an evil affliction. If a man begets a hundred children and lives many years so that his days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with goodness. Or indeed, he has no burial. I say a stillborn child is better than he. For it comes in vanity and departs in darkness, and its name is covered with darkness. Though it has not seen the sun or known anything, this has more rest than that man. Even if he lives a thousand years twice, but has not seen goodness, do not all go to one place? All the labor of a man is for his mouth, and yet his soul is not satisfied. For what more has the wise man than the fool? What does the poor man have? Who knows how to walk before the living? Oh, there's so much that Solomon has to say here. The first thing, he says, I've seen this evil. If you're reading the Holman Christian Standard Bible, for the word evil, it translates it tragedy. This is something I've seen that's a tragedy in life. It's something that's not good for It's something that's not pleasant. In fact, it's distasteful. But he says it's common among men. If I were to ask you to look at your circle of friends, look at the people you work with, look at the people you go to school with, are they happy? Are they satisfied? Have they accomplished anything that they feel like, oh, I've made it? I want you to notice What kind of things do people believe will bring them real satisfaction? Notice the list that Solomon provides for us. Lots of money. Wealth. Persons able to to live a life so that they can enjoy lots and lots of money and they think it can buy the happiness and the satisfaction they want. Second of all, a large family. That is, a lot of loving people around you A lot of children and grandchildren. Number three, a long life. You know, you you don't meet a lot of misfortune. You you don't have a lot of disease, so you live, you know, more than the three score and ten or four score, more than 70 or 80 years. Let's say you live to be 100 years. Let's say you live to be 115. You know, one of those extreme cases. A person who has a job, they love their labor. They enjoy getting out and working with their hands. Oh, if I could just be a a rock star, 
or a football player or a basketball player. Or if I could just be this person so that I would be able to be accomplished in life. Let's look at what Solomon has to say here and think about it for just a little bit. Think about what he says about lots of money. Look again at verse 2. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor so that he lacks nothing for all that he desires. Here's a man that can have anything he wants financially. He can buy any kind of vehicle he wants to buy. He can buy any kind of food he wants to eat. He can wear any kind of clothes he wants to have. He can live in any kind of house he wants to live in. In fact, have two or three of them if he wants to do so. How much? He lacks nothing. He has all that his heart desires. I want you to listen to Psalm 73, verse 7, as Asaph there is looking at the wicked, and primarily he's looking at what all they have, and he says, their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than their heart could wish. Now I know in your mind you're thinking about the Bill Gates or the people who are multi-millionaires. Don't think of those people. Think of us. How many of us have not only enough food for today, but probably enough put back to last us a long time? Not only do we have that much food, but we actually throw away more food than a lot of people eat. How many of us not only have so many clothes, but we now have to have bigger closets to be able to store the clothes that we have, and we have clothes that perfectly, I don't say they perfectly fit us, but we've got clothes, and we've got more clothes, and we try to find someone to give them to because we've got so much. We enjoy all kinds of forms of entertainment, and uh, we go pretty much where we want to go, and we do pretty much what we want to do. Luke 12 and verse 15, Jesus reminds us, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Your life is not all about how much you have. Oh, how much is he worth? Well, he's worth $10 million. I hope he's worth more than that. Because Jesus died for him. Matthew 16, verse 26, Jesus warns, For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what would a man give in exchange for his soul? He gets wealth, but Solomon pictures him as being unable to enjoy it. He says he goes out, God blesses him with so much, but you know what? He can't use it all, so what happens? Someone else, a foreigner, consumes it. He's the one that actually gets the use out of it. So as a man who has wealth satisfied, will you go talk to the wealthy people? Are you satisfied with what you have in life? Most of them will tell you no. It does not provide the satisfaction that you think it does. We'll look at verse 3, the first part of verse 3. He said, if a man begets a hundred children, 
I know some of you are thinking, I don't know if I want to raise a hundred kids or not. But I want you to think he's using a large number to try to get our minds thinking of a large family. You know that a large family was the sign of a great blessing? Psalm 127 verses 4 and 5 said, Like arrows in the hands of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with their enemies in the gate. In other words, you have your family, your family's behind you. When the enemy comes to the gate, you say, okay, let me introduce you to my family that's behind me. Or think about the promise made to Abraham in Genesis 15 and verse 5. He said, he brought him out, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Abraham, look at your children who are going that you're going to have. You're going to have many of them. You want me to tell you what I have seen with large families? The bigger they get, the more squabbles they have. And you say, really? Well, you think about the sons of Jacob. Think about Joseph. Think about the kind of one-upmanship that went along with that family. I think about old Bimelech. Judges chapter 9 and verse 5, then he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the 70 sons of Jerubbabel, that's Gideon, on one stone. Jotham, the youngest of Jerubbabel, was left because he hid himself. He killed 70 of his brothers. You know why he did that? He didn't want any kind of competition. I know we've heard a lot about the news of North Korea recently. That little dictator over there who considers himself to be someone important, he knows that there's others who would challenge him, so he kills everybody who is, is trying to challenge him, even those of his own immediate family. And someone said, okay, I know that, that money is not where it's at, a large family must not be where it's at, but surely living a long life. Listen to verse 3 and verse 6. If a man lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with goodness. Look at verse 6. Even if he lives a thousand years twice, Remember Methuselah, 969 years, twice as long as Methuselah. But he has not seen goodness. Do not all go to one place? What if I can live 70 years, 80 years, 100 years? And someone says, well, just give me a few more, a few more years. See, long life is generally desired. That's what we want. We don't want to die young. But listen to Psalms 91 and verse 16. With a long life I will satisfy him and show him my satisfaction or my salvation. Proverbs 3 verse 2. For length of days and a long life and peace they will add to you. Talking about wisdom. But sometimes it's not just the quantity but it's the quality that counts. 
Who would want to live a long life of misery, pain, agony? Do you know that Job, once pain inflicted his body, wanted to die? He didn't want to live. And then the picture is this one has no burial. Jeremiah 16 and verse 4, Jeremiah gives the picture. They die gruesome deaths. They shall not be lamented or they shall, shall they be buried, but they shall be like refuse on the face of the earth. They shall be consumed by the sword and by famine, and their corpses shall be meat for the birds of the heaven and for the beasts of the earth. You see, these people, what are they trying to do? They're, they're trying to have a long life, and many times their long life ends up with no decent departure from this world. Someone says, oh, but if I could just have the job that I love, if I could just have a job that I could be able to, uh, to find meaning in, and I think it's so funny that you look at some of these, for instance, sports figures. Or if I could live the life of this sports figure, do you know what most of them make the news for? Being shot outside bars. Many of them's lives are nothing more than misery. Look at verse 7. All the labor of man is for his mouth, and yet his soul is not satisfied. You know his mouth, what he eats. The reason why you work. The picture here is why do people work? To make money to eat. Proverbs 16.26 says the person who labors, labors for himself. For his hungry mouth drives him on. You know, you, you work because you get paid. Few people really do love their jobs. And you say, oh, I love my job. Take away the pay and see how many people keep working. person comes in, they go into the work tomorrow and say, I love my job. And the boss comes in and says, okay, I'm glad you love it because we're not going to pay you anymore. You can keep on coming to work. You can keep on doing your job. We're not going to pay you. I bet you don't love it near as much anymore, do you? Many seek a job where they can find meaning and fulfillment only to realize it's still work. You still have to labor. The questions of verse 8 force a person to face reality. What do you really have with your job? Maybe you, you work at a job one place all your life. You start there as a teenager. You retire there. When you leave, what do they give you? A plaque to put on the wall. I don't know if anybody gives a gold watch anymore. But you depart and, and you say, now someone else is doing what I did. And you just have memories of that job. And Solomon is saying, okay, now you look at all those things. Where's your satisfaction? Where do you find meaning in the things that are a part of our daily struggle in life? Verse 8 for what more has the wise man than the fool? What does the poor man have? Who knows how to walk before the living? 
If you look at life purely from a secular point, Solomon says you get to the end of it, now you're old. What do you have? What do you have? I am so glad verses 8 through 12 is in this chapter. Because I want to tell you, whenever I read Solomon, I'm sitting there and I read what he has to say and I'm thinking, I'm depressed. I'm discouraged. Is this all there is? Let's read verses 9 through 12. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of desire. This also is vanity and grasping for wind. Whatever one is, he has been named already. For it is known that he is man, and he cannot contend with him who is mightier than he. Since there are many things that increase vanity, how is man the better? For who knows what is good for man in life all the days of his vain life that passes like a shadow? Who can tell a man what will happen to him after him under the sun? Now, uh, I think the key question is in verse 12. Who knows what is good for man in life? That's a question I, I think deserves some pondering. Who knows what's good for me? Well, the truth is, God is the only one who knows the answers to these type questions. When you study the book of Jeremiah, and I alluded to it several times this morning in our lesson, as man looks at life and he tries to make decisions, and by the time you get to Jeremiah, so many poor decisions have been made, Jeremiah says, O Lord, I know the way of man, It is not in man himself, and not in man, to direct his own steps. You turn me loose without any guidance and direction from God, and where am I going to go, and what am I going to do, and what decisions will I make? I don't know what to do without guidance and direction. When you get to the end of the book of Job... You've had Job's three friends, Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar. And then you have this young guy that comes up, and he, he's the one who has all the answers, or at least he thinks so. His name is Elihu. And Job himself has spewed out, if you will, a lot of suggestions. Here's God in chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the world, went and said... Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched a line upon it? God is looking at Job and saying, Okay, Job, you have the answers. Now you tell me. Answer me some of these basic questions. Job says, Lord, I don't know what I'm talking about. Notice with me chapter 42, verse 3. You ask, who is he who hides counsel without knowledge? 
Therefore I uttered things which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Here is man in this life. You go to Dr. Phil, or you go to this psychologist, or you go to that wise man. What do they know? Oh, they've observed some things that have happened in their life, and oh, they believe that they have the answers. But do you want me to tell you the only one who really knows man is the one who created man? Who, who understands how it all fits together? What does the one who knows the answer say? Look at verse 9. Place more on emphasis on what you can see rather than the fanciful dreams. Success comes from hard work. Look with me, verse 9. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of desire. What you can see, you know what you can do, what you can observe with your eyes, you do that instead of just living in the clouds all the time. Proverbs seventeen twenty four says, Wisdom is in the sight of him who has understanding, but the eyes of the fool are on the ends of the earth. He's daydreaming all the time. Oh, if I could only have this. If I could only do this. God said, you see what's in front of you? Do that. Sometimes people have this idea that the Lord's church can grow with great imagination. You know what helps? You see your neighbor across the road who needs help. You see the neighbor that you work with that needs to be taught the gospel. I'm not against imagination. But I think what God is saying, you want the true answer to life, work where you are. Do what's in front of you. Look at verse 10. Man is not in a position to question God's ways. Job 9 verse 32. Whatever one is, he has been named already. For it is known that he is man, and he cannot contend with him who is mightier than he. Who am I? I'm a man. I'm a creature. I'm a part of God's creation. Who is God? He is the creator. He is the one who made it all. Do you suppose that I somehow can enter into a contention with God? Job 9.32, for he's not a man as I am, that I may answer him and that we should go to court together, you can't go and say, God, I think you should have done it this way. You're not that smart. You're not that intelligent. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways and your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. When Paul looked at God's divine work and saving man by using the Jews and the Gentiles. He said, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? As if you should somehow be able to tell God how to do things. Then look at verse 11. Too much talk is on man's side. 
The Hebrew word here that's translated things is literally something that is said. Look with me at verse 11. Since there are many things that increase vanity, how is man the better? I believe the the translation would be better. Since there are many words that increase vanity, something that's said now, how is man the better? You know, if I do all this talking as a man, presenting my ideas, my thoughts, how does that make any of us better? The truth is, I don't know any more than you do. Who we need to be listening to is the God who knows it all. Proverbs ten nineteen: in the multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. Proverbs 17, 27, he who, understand, who has knowledge spares his words, but a man of understanding is of a calm spirit. You know, you, you be careful what you say. Life is frustrating. Many times it's meaningless. Most of us are searching through life, trying to scratch and claw and, and try to find what we're wanting in life, the meaning of life. And I think about John chapter 6. Jesus has been on the Sea of Galilee and he has gathered a large crowd around him. He's preached a sermon on the bread of life. And what he has made it clear is that the bread of life is not a loaf of bread. The bread of life is the words that he has spoken to them. And when Jesus points out that he himself is the bread of life, people started walking away and said, well, that wasn't what I came for. When Jesus looked at his disciples, he asked them the question, would you also go away? And here's how Peter responds in verse 68. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter got it. Peter got it. As I look at Ecclesiastes chapter 6, I see us going through life, feebly trying to find the real meaning, and Solomon saying, hold on, God knows our past, he knows our present, he knows our future. He's trying to provide for us the answers to the questions of life. Solomon was blessed with wisdom from God. If you're here tonight, it's not as a Christian, wanting to obey the gospel. What a wonderful privilege it would be tonight to come forward, to be baptized for the remission of your sins be added by the Lord to the church, Acts chapter 2, verse 47. When you leave tonight, go home, lay your head on your pillow, and knowing that all is well, your sins are forgiven. If you're as a Christian needing prayers for forgiveness, we can pray to a God who does forgive. If you need to come, would you come as we stand and sing number 107?